Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here as always with Rachel Madel. How's it going, Rachel? It's going really well, Chris. I have a, a surprise. A surprise? Yeah. What do you have? I'm, I'm dying I, to know. I have this really awesome thing that I just bought from Amazon, and I'm really proud of myself. So are you ready to see it? I am. I'm on pins and needles here. Okay. What does this look like to you? That looks like a silver metal bar that um, is, what, I know, wait, I know what it is. It's one of those things you put over your head for your braces. Is that, are you getting braces? <laughs> that is what it looks like. It looks like braces from the 70s. Um, no, wrong. <laughs> it looks like an iPad stand. <laughs> yes. But you know what, Chris? It's not actually an iPad stand. It's a cookbook holder. Oh, okay. But the reason I'm really excited about this, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners can relate to this, it's really hard to find a sturdy iPad stand that actually works. Mm -hmm. So of course, some kids have cases that have stands, but then inevitably the stand breaks off or something happens to the stand. Um, and there's actually a stand that I typically recommend. Um, you can find it on RJ Cooper's site. But the problem is it's really expensive. By the time shipping's said and done, it's like 60 or 70 bucks. This was $9.99 on Amazon. Mm. I ordered this yesterday and it came today. And it fits it fits so many different iPads. See how wide this is? You guys can't see it, but I'm going to link to this in the show notes because it's my new favorite thing. <laughs> I've been putting all different kinds of iPads and things in here and I can't wait to take it to my office tomorrow. Hold on, I'm going to bend down for a second. This is my little stand. So it is metal and it is also a cookbook stand, but it's what I use. Uh, I mentioned it, how... Uh, well, I can't remember if we mentioned it or not, but when I'm recording audio and I'm reading the audio, I put the book right on this stand and it's often with the iPad. So it's interesting that we don't actually use iPad stands. We're using cookbook stands. I'll definitely link to this because it's my new favorite thing and it was $10 on Amazon. So, so you know, another uh, interesting point there about if we're, if, we're, if we're going down the iPad stand conversation, something that I think is um, some students use in, in our neck of the woods is we have other students create or find, um, or students themselves, find them on Thingiverse. So Thingiverse is a website where you can download 3D printing files. So we've talked about 3D printing before, and then there are definitely iPad stands there that you could, so kids could kind of choose what they needed, but then once you have the file, you can customize it, you know? So if you needed it to be flatter or you needed to have a higher angle, you needed to be more sturdy because you printed it out and it wasn't working right, you can take someone else's work and then just move from there, you know? Say, okay, how can I adjust this? Uh, again, authentic learning for other students, authentic learning for our students who are using communication devices and they're like, okay, how can I solve this? Really, anybody can use the stuff they find on Thingiverse and make their own, make their own stand. You know what else I love about iPad stands? I think it's a constant reminder to find and get the iPad. And so one of the biggest recommendations I make for families at home is to buy an iPad stand and put it in the middle of their dining room table or their coffee table, somewhere where they see it all the time and they think, oh, I should get the iPad right now. Because a lot of times, one of the biggest hurdles is families don't remember to get the device. They, it's mm -hmm. in the backpack. They don't think about it, right? They're just going through their routines. They're making dinner. They're doing all the things. If you have an empty stand, the empty stand needs to be filled. It's a constant little reminder. It's a prompt. It's a visual prompt that says, hey, yeah, right. The thing's got to go there. Right, and then I have to use it. Yeah. That's exactly. a great idea. Another, since we're talking about iPad stands here, another on the, on the cheap way of doing iPad stands is um, PVC pipe. So you could go to your, uh, the Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever your local hardware store is. You can get PVC pipe uh, and you cut those down to, usually it's, it's you know, the hacksaw or they have PVC pipe skewers and cutters that you can get. Or many times people have those in their house already. You know what I mean? You're not buying anything extra. You're just buying some PVC pipe. And now you can bling that thing out. You know what I mean? You can paint it different colors. You could put stickers on it. You can, you can do what you need to do to, and you can make it adjustable. You can flip it around because you can take those pieces out and re, you know, reconfigure them how you need to. But that has been another way I've seen other people make iPads stands on the cheap. Love that. And also I think it's, there's something to be said for when a child customizes something they use every day. So when you involve a child in the process, they're more motivated to use that thing, to have that thing around because they created it. 
Well, so I think I've said this before, but when I spend time with users of AAC who are proficient, you know, maybe they've had it for many years, they're sort of the end user where they're not the emergent user, they're not first getting it. That's something I notice about their communication devices is that they usually are personalized. And I don't mean personalized vocabulary. I mean, they have done They've put some sort of glitter on the outside. There's some sort of stickers. There's some sort of thing that indicates that this is mine and this is who I am. I don't think of it any different than I have a laptop right now and you can't see it, Rachel, because it's on the back of the screen, right? On the back of your head right now, there are stickers of the Avengers, you know? And, and my kids, they, they get Chromebooks for their one-to-one initiative. What's the first thing they want to do when they get their Chromebook? It's what stickers am I putting on here, you know? Love it, love it. So there were some interesting conversations going on in the Facebook group, Chris, this week. Yes, yes. First of all, I just love our Facebook group. I love that people go in there and participate. I love that they're posting uh, questions. And what I also love is that, I mean, we are sometimes slammed and we can't get to it as fast as we'd like to. And I get there and I see, oh, there's like 10 responses and comments and people helping each other. And it's like, awesome. This is what a community should be, right? So what happened this particular week is that uh, people were writing about uh, when we were talking about coding and robots. So someone wrote, long story, I'm going to try and make it short, but I'm a mom of a kindergartner that is learning to use a device to communicate and he has no words he can speak consistently. So verbally, I think there. He is currently in a self-contained classroom, uh, which is very supportive, but they're also trying to move into a more inclusive setting and, and trying to include the student in other settings. So the kids each year are doing a community-minded project and partnering with organizations. So for example, tackling the disappearance of bees, which my daughter did the same thing in second grade. That was her project-based learning lesson was, if if anyone's ever heard me speak, I tell that story all the time about her her project to save the bees. Anyway, uh, they're partnering with this inclusive playground creators to try and design an inclusive playground. Uh, It might be hypothetical or might they, they might actually be trying to build this playground um, and that that with the what the person posted here is that that sounds awesome yes please build inclusive playgrounds but is there any one of our students that really needs that inclusive playground right now because there's a, a kid I know my son who could actually be using robots and using uh coding and could be doing some sort of other, uh, again, similar vein where you'd be doing some sort of project-based learning uh, lesson, but it wouldn't necessarily be about an inclusive playground. Now, of course, the inclusive playground would not exclude her son, but sometimes when you hear inclusive playground, people think uh, wheelchair accessibility, not inclusive for everybody. But anyway, so both are well-meaning and good-intentioned and, and awesome projects, right, to have a, an inclusive playground and to maybe try and have some sort of coding initiative. She was asking for specific strategies about how to bring that to the teacher's attention, bring that to the principal's attention. When I say that, the, this kind of the idea of using coding and robots, uh, the school doesn't seem like they're, they're foreign to it. And so, like I said, tons of people were posting in here, there's uh, 18 comments at the time of this recording, and maybe there'll be more later, that uh, of people responding with strategies they've used, similar experiences they've had. Uh, it's just been great. Yeah. And you know, Chris, I didn't realize that you wrote an article about coding and language for USAC. I put that on my to-do list to read it. <laughs> I did. Well, I really talk about how block coding, if people don't know what it is, it's just, it's like puzzle pieces that you drag around and the puzzle pieces fit together. And when you fit them together, they make a sequence. And when you hit a little play button, they do the sequence. So it's, an, it's the first or a really easy way to learn what coding is and that there's some logic because, hey, if the puzzle pieces don't fit, then the logic doesn't work, you know? Uh, and it shows this great cause and effect. And here's what you really find when you look at, the, uh, at the, those words that are on the puzzle pieces when you drag them over, the commands that these puzzle pieces have on them when you drag them over is they're mostly core vocabulary, right? It's like you hit the play button and then it says uh, whatever the thing is, like an object on the screen or if the code talks to a robot, the thing could go and then it stops and it turns and it plays a sound and then it turns again and then it goes and it stops and it plays another sound and then it waits and it's just going through this script and it just, to me, there's this natural uh, fit between coding uh, coding for computers and coding for robots, especially block coding and core vocabulary. 
I love that. I love any opportunity to talk about core vocabulary. Um, but if, if someone's interested in learning more about this, Chris, like I, myself included, I don't know a lot about coding. What's an easy way to get started with something like this? Sure. If you don't know anything about coding, I would definitely check out, and especially for, for kids, but really anyone, um, there's a great website called code.org. Uh, and when you go there, there's um, different games they have for you to play that get you started. They build upon one another, so it's very simple. Uh, like there's one that's a Star, Board, Star Wars one where you are uh, controlling BB-8, if you know, if you're familiar with Star Wars and that robot, and you have to give it commands to move around the screen. There's another one for Frozen where you're giving commands to, I think it's Elsa and... Anna. 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 <laughs> I know all about Frozen. <laughs> uh, so you're giving commands to Anna from Frozen and you, you control her around the screen. Um, and they build upon one another. So it starts out very simple, like just make BB-8 go from the left to the right by dragging these things over. And then it continuously gets more difficult. So you're making these uh, more sophisticated code. But again, it's all scripted out for you. So it makes it nice and easy and very engaging for kids. So that's one of the first places I would go to kind of learn more about this. Let's also talk about Dash because you put that as one of the recommendations in the comments. What's Dash? So Dash and Dot are these robots that are from a company called Wonder Workshop. Uh, no, we're not sponsored by Wonder Workshop. But uh, so they're, they're often found in schools already. So um, and what they are is if you if you since this is an audio podcast, if you picture this robot, it's uh, the Dash robot looks like four different blue balls about the size of a softball or a baseball. Three of them make up the base, okay? So you picture like a triangle, you know, with ball number one, ball number two, ball number three, all touching together. And then ball number four sits on top of those three. Uh, and that one has an eyeball on it. And underneath the, these, these balls are wheels. So it can drive around, the eyeball moves around, it has lights on it, it plays sounds. And it corresponds with an iPad app that you, there's a bunch of actually different apps. Um, and the apps, I believe, are free. It's the robot that you're paying for. And so you use the robot in a very rudimentary way. You can drive it around like a remote control car. But then you can also have, like, for instance, one of the apps is called Blockly, where it is this block coding. And it has the same similar puzzle pieces. You drag these puzzle pieces over onto a canvas, hit the play button, it sends the message to the Dash robot, and the Dash robot then listens to those commands and follows, those, follows what you asked it to do. This little robot is so cute. I'm really into him. Yeah, <laughs> is it adorable. him? I don't know. Him, he, or him, her? I'm not sure, but I really like it. And there, there's all these really cool accessories too. I'm just looking on their website right now. They do. They have one like to make like a slingshot or I guess it's like a catapult. They mm -hmm. have one where you can add this accessory onto it and it like picks things up like a little grabber or like a claw. You know, I haven't played too much with those, uh, although that's all ways to make it fun. Um, like I said, I don't feel like this is a great expense for people because oftentimes it's a, a librarian might have these already. They might be in your library. They might be in your computer lab. If you have a makerspace, they might be in there. The, these are things that might already exist. And not just the Dash robot. There are other companies out there. There's Ozabot and Bebot and all these other robots out there that are relatively inexpensive. You know, they're not $4,000, $5,000 uh, solutions, you know. Um, and so, so I think they're a great thing to play with and, and really start teaching kids about coding and uh, computer science. And like I said, there's a correlation to core vocabulary. Yeah. And I'm really intrigued by all of this. I'm excited to, what is it, code.org? Code.org, yes. I, I know what I'm doing tonight after work. going to play some games. So Chris, let's talk a little bit about your interview today with Megan. So yeah, so um, if you might remember from a couple podcast episodes ago, I mentioned how a friend of mine sent a picture into me uh, where she had kind of blacked out the faces or put the smiley faces over the faces. And one of the students that she sees is a user of an augmented communication app. And she saw him at his Parks and Rec uh, day camp over the summer. And she was like, check this out, right? It was him sitting with two of his friends who are not AAC users. Uh, but those kids had already known about this particular app because they knew in their school during the year how uh, they knew other kids that used this particular app. So she was like, how awesome is this? I just walked in and they were sitting there and they were modeling and it was peers working together and peers modeling and, and they were just playing. And, and so 
I was like, this is awesome, you know? And Megan Betts is the person that sent me that picture. And we're going to talk about a little bit about that, but just in general, her experience with AAC and, and uh, she's also a private practice person. So we're going to get into a little bit of that and just chat in general about, uh, about how AAC works. I'm really excited. I think our listeners are really going to like this one. Um, before we head into the interview, the day this podcast releases, Chris and I will be recording a webinar for AAC After Work. Um, so we're talking about digital storytelling and how you can use digital storytelling apps and games um, to support AAC learners. And I'm really excited about this, Chris. Pumped. We just kind of, before before we hopped on today, we started talking about what we were going to talk about. And he has a lot of interesting games and apps I've never heard of. And I probably have some ones that he's never heard of too. Vice versa. Absolutely. I can't wait to learn from you. Yeah. So if you guys are interested, it's a completely free conference hosted by Exceptional Ed. So if you guys are interested, we would love to have some familiar faces in our audience. You can go to bit.ly backslash TWT pod. Um, and that way you can sign up for the conference. Uh, I think that you have the entire week to watch the webinar for free. And then of course there's other amazing presenters all week. Also some really amazing presenters all week. We have Carolyn Musselwhite. We have Lauren Enders, we have Annie Page, and Jill Center and Matt Bob, which a lot of these people have been on our podcast before. So I'm really excited to see what everyone else presents on. I love this conference. It's always right in the beginning of the school year, and you leave feeling inspired and excited to start implementing AAC throughout the year. So without further ado, here's my interview with Megan Betts. Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here today with Dr. Megan Betts. How's it going, Dr. Betts? It's good. How are you? All right. So let's tell people a little bit about who you are and what you do, but let's start with how we met. Okay. So you and I have known each other for many years now because uh, we used to work together in the school district that I still currently work with. You used to work there. And I remember the day we met, we were sitting at a table in the my former colleague, Mark Nichols, used to call the Cafe Gymatorium, right? We were in a, <laughs> uh, one of those rooms that is a multi-purpose room. And it was your first year, right? Or was it your CFY year? Do you remember? Yeah, yep. It was my first year and I was all over whatever anybody could teach me or show me or any kind of tools or materials. So I was up at that staff training center for everything they offered. <laughs> so that was many years ago. You no longer work for Loudoun County Public Schools directly, right? Right. I've um, started a private practice. So I still work in the same um, county, but I work privately for my own company. And then um, in the meantime, I did a PhD in special education at George Mason. So now I work there as an adjunct um, and I teach the um, reading and language development classes and the communication for students with severe disabilities. Oh, that is awesome. That is awesome. So yes, um, my wife just graduated from George Mason University with her master's in educational leadership. So oh, good for her. Yeah, yeah. And she's currently researching, you know, whether she's going to continue on in a PhD program. So awesome. 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 Has, yeah, exactly. Someone who has some experience there. So congratulations. So you have the private practice. Let's talk about that. So geographically, we're in the same area. Uh, even though we're doing this over Skype right now. Right. Because <laughs> that's how the schedules go. So let's talk about that private practice. What, is it, what does it look like? What do you do? So I have a combination of home visits and uh, private and preschool visits and a little bit at the office. I've got an office recently. So typically, though, I'm working in the students' homes at their kitchen tables a lot of time or on the living room floor. And then, you know, as we work together, kind of collaborating with school staff. Um, either in the public schools or in the private schools. And it's a lot of fun. Um, I've put a lot of miles on my car. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine, yeah. But um, I really enjoy working in the realistic setting as much as possible. Um, and kind of as I'm shifting to some more office-based hours, what I'm trying to do is schedule the little guys at home because I tend to work with a lot of students who have more um, complex communication needs. So they tend to be lifers. <laughs> so getting them started when they're young, preschool toddlers at home, and then as they get to be school-aged and they're in school all day, then I'm transitioning them to the office. So that's working out pretty well. Gotcha. So would you, so you do see a lot of preschool students then? 
Yeah, it's kind of, you know, every year what happens is I start seeing them and then a lot of times they get picked up for school. So they go to school full time. Um, so it's a good mix. I've Right now I've got from three years old up to 22. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. That's why I mean, that's the range, right? Uh, that would be a public school uh, for right. the most part, right? Is is preschool up till usually 21 or 22. So, right. so you see the whole gamut. And then what I heard you say is that you work closely with the families. Like when you push into the house, right. um, are, is it you like going off in your own room or is the family there? What does that look like for students with complex communication needs? It definitely depends. And um, a lot of times it has to do with parent preference. So sometimes parents are convinced that the kids will do better if they're not there, which is sometimes accurate. But whenever possible, I try and have them like folding laundry in the next room or loading the dishwasher so that they're in earshot and you know, they can see what we're doing, but they're not right on top of us. And then I have some other parents who sit right with us, sit at the kitchen table and participate and take turns and, and model. And, and I, I love that. And I think after, I think a lot of times for speech paths, you have to do so much therapy at the beginning that's supervised and collaborative. If you can stay comfortable with that, I think it's really easy then to have other people with you while you're doing therapy. You don't feel like you're being evaluated. You actually feel like you are offering and showing and demonstrating. So, you know, that was kind of an interesting thing going into private practice. I was always kind of thinking like, okay, I want to make this seem valuable. I want to make sure the parent feels like they're getting their money's worth, that they feel like I'm qualified. And then I realized, you know what? I am, I do have (laughs) these skills. I do have these things to offer. And then I kind of relaxed a little bit and felt like I could really listen to them and make it more what they needed versus what I wanted to tell them, you know, let's see what was going on in that house or that parent style and kind of adapt to, to that specific family. Certainly, certainly lessons learned over the years, right? I mean, I, I know when I first started out as a speech therapist, I did some private practice on the side, you know, after school. And that's mm-hmm. exactly how I felt. I felt like, oh my gosh, um, am I sh- sharing stuff that's worthwhile? I mean, every time, let me make sure I'm giving them information, giving them information. I did a lot more talking than I did listening, you know? Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing you say is you've made the same journey and now you do more listening to what their needs are and responding to that as opposed to telling them what they should do differently. Yeah, I would definitely say that. Yeah. So now you work with kids with, um, like we said, complex communication needs and you work with the families and like you said, sometimes they're, you're teaching them about modeling and they're, they're, they're with you. Is, is a lot of your practice kids with uh, high tech devices, low tech? What's, what's the, what's that look like for you? Yeah, I would say about a third of my caseload has high tech devices. Um, I have a couple kids using LAMP. I have a student that has Proloquo to go. Um, those are the the big ones. I think too, with them being uh, based on the iPad, I think that just, it makes them accessible to parents and a little less intimidating because they're an app. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much what I'm working with now directly. And then in the university, we're kind of um, making sure that our students know that, okay, there's other things out there, other devices, other companies, you know, things like with eye gaze and things like that too. But for my day-to-day work, it's really primarily, I would say, with LAMP. Mm-hmm. Now, do you find yourself in the selection process for a device, or is it uh, some, usually something that's already been selected and now you're just working with it? How does that, how does that look like in general? It's been um, kind of half and half. For some families, particularly the really little guys who haven't been to school and aren't part of a special ed process or an IEP, I tend to have more recommendations and more guidance for them. Um, For several of my students, they have had an AT about school and they have access to your system. And then like for you and I, we worked together and we kind of brainstormed what would be the best uh, device for students. So it's a, it's a mix of everything. Let's, let's dive into that story for a little bit. So this particular situation that we're talking about was a student that was not currently using Um, AAC, but in his environment, there were other students that were using AAC. And the public speech therapist um, was contemplating AAC. You as the private speech therapist were contemplating Mm -hmm. AAC. The parents, um, in fact, I think one of the family members had some knowledge about AAC. Mm -hmm. And so everyone was sort of thinking about it. And it was, how are we going to select what it should be? And like you you had mentioned uh, an AT evaluation, but we had said, hmm, 
we feel like we know this kid. There's not really like new information we need about the kid or new information that would help us make this decision. It's just that everyone sort of needs to come together and make a decision together. And so that's exactly what we did, right? We got into a room and we made a little chart and we listed out all the possible things we, that, would, uh, that we thought were considerations for this student, right? Right, right. And I think um, it was, you know, really the perfect kind of model in the sense that we all had at least collaborated in one form or another. So everyone went in open and no one was trying to pitch something or defend something, which I think always, obviously, if you go in with the spirit of collaboration, that's the best situation. And um, I felt at that meeting, like everyone got a chance to talk and we also pulled in, we were able to say to the OT and to the parent, like, well, what do you think? What are your priorities? What are your concerns about his motor skills or memory or whatever? So it wasn't a one size fits all. Cause that was one of the things I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just every kid's getting the same program. Yes. Yes. Well, and that by, by coming up with a, a collaborative, it sort of ensures that, right? That everyone gets their, their voices heard. It's not just one person picking something because they like it better. Uh, and you know, you, you mentioned the occupational therapist who, I left out of the story, but absolutely, that person absolutely had a, uh, opinions about what the student would be, uh, we could teach them and what they were going to need. And then if I remember correctly, both parents weren't there at the time. The second parent came in like a little bit into it. Right. So we had to kind of re-explain everything afterwards. Yeah. Like, hey, this is why we put these things on this list. And this is what we're thinking. And, and uh, that parent was all for it. You know, we didn't have to sell anything. Right. But it, it helped us, to me, it was like a nice little summary of what we, it, accidentally, it was a summary of our thought process, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, one of the things that you did, which was very useful, and um, I think should be done more in any kind of IEP or collaborative or just, you know, any kind of decision-making process is we had it visually. Like, you had a list of pros and cons and kind of the differences between the devices we were considering. And I think that makes a really big difference because everyone knows what's going on. Everyone will be on the same page, more or less, if they if they can see what what's happening. Um, and I think for a lot of meetings like that, there's so much information and everybody's waiting to get their turn to say something. Like sometimes you don't have that actual, you have that crosstalk versus that integrated discussion. So I think that that's a useful thing that just trying to remember to do more often, you know, kind of bullet points or summarize, or I think we just had like a T-chart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we really did. I mean, at the time we were just doing it on like a big piece of paper or something, right. you know, and right. the speech therapist for the school was sort of the note taker that was kind of writing down the things as we came up with them. But yeah, having some sort of now, we, you know, if you could have some sort of form that you fill out, or like you said, have it displayed in some way. We're working on completing this thing together so that there's no, I I think it helps having the visual, it helps people have that open mind. We all came in with an open mind, but I could imagine if we were proponents of this this approach, people would come in and they wouldn't necessarily have an open mind, but by Mm -hmm. having it be visual and us kind of filling out this chart together, it sort of forces that open-mindedness. It's not really thinking, oh, I got to try and pick the thing, the the thing that I think it is. It's just filling this this chart out together. Right. And I think that kind of dovetails with something else I wanted to to talk about is I know sometimes, and this parent was totally on board, you know, and and gung-ho, and this is a student that has some vocalizations and verbalizations and actually fast forward is saying a ton of words but loves his device loves it uses it beautifully Um, but helping parents understand that we're not giving up on talking if that's appropriate for that student and this is something that is going to be an opportunity for you to connect and share and play and just have another uh, another bond another opportunity so hearing them out, you know, if they have any preservations or concerns, or if they really, really want a particular thing because they've read about it online, making sure that they have that space to say either what their reservations are or why they want something in particular to be considered. Um, and working privately, I think that that's something that parents don't always feel super comfortable going into a school when they feel like there's five or six people from the school and one of them. So I think our meeting was great because we were such an open, warm bunch. But I just try and remember that as all the meetings that I'm in, that this is, you know, a lot for a parent to take in and to process it all and be able to share their, you know, their thoughts too. Yes. Well, so that, that is a great. So is there sort of um, any strategies you would give to people that are participating in these meetings? Like you said, just remember that it can be intimidating to walk into the room and there's six, five, six people already sitting around. 
Um, but any other strategies you might give? I think um, if you're the one hosting the meeting, maybe let the parent talk first and ask what their kind of questions or concerns or preferences are. And, you know, kind of like we all do, but well, many of us do that reflective listening. So I hear that you're concerned about this. And I think having, we had devices there to model, we had different programs there to model. So I think that actually showing parents you know, the difference between Proloquo and LAMP or, you know, any other type of device where they could actually see it, that I think when they see it and understand what you're talking about, I think that opens them up just for, to understand what's going on so that they can then share their opinion. I think a lot of times we don't even realize it, but we get into jargon and technical speak and it, it goes, you know, over their head sometimes and they're not going to want to ask too many questions or, um, yeah. That's a that's a feedback I get from a lot of parents just in general that they go into the meeting and there's a lot of people already sitting there and they already feel like minds are made up and whatever questions or concerns that they have get glossed over. You know, not every single meeting, but I hear that sure. enough. So I think it's really important to, to clear that space for the parent maybe in the beginning. Mm-hmm. That parallels what you were saying about when you first started and when I first started and we Mm -hmm. did a lot of telling to parents and now we do a lot more listening. Like you said, those reflective questions back, just do that all the time, whether you're at the kitchen table or where you do that, the IEP table, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Being open-minded and hearing them. And yeah. And I think to the other thing kind of along the same lines is I'm trying to figure out, and I think we've talked about this a little bit, is figuring out like bite-sized information or bite-sized strategies to give parents where it's not all the information at once. So making sure I leave behind, okay, work on this this week specifically, you know, give them a little bit of theory and knowledge, but, you know, not give them every, whether it's at an IEP meeting or a kitchen table, everything that we want to share. So, okay. So what's an example maybe of this week where you gave a little bit of knowledge or a little bit of uh, information or a little bit of uh, like, here's your homework for the week or something like that? Um, so I had a student today actually who has LAMP and he's, you know, early on with it. And um, the parents are concerned that he just kind of takes it and plays with it. And when we're working in a structured situation, he is clearly picking go, he's clearly picking eat, he's clearly picking finished. So having them say, okay, well, you know what? Let him have access to it because he's exploring it. And I said, but with your other little guy, you wouldn't hand him like a little Casio keyboard piano and say, okay, now you know how to play the piano. You have to sit and teach him or bring in a piano teacher. I said, so, you know, this works so well with him asking to eat something. Maybe every time that you eat, you can, you know, take a little time and just practice modeling, having him ask for food you demonstrating, oh, I'm going to eat and show him where that is. And then I said, maybe next week we'll do, I'll leave the, um, we were doing those pop rockets, those little air foam rockets that you can shoot. You know, maybe I'll leave these here next week and next week you can do eat and go. And part of me as a therapist wants him to like have all the words that I know he has, he can use, right? I want to just, well, he can use these 20 words when I'm here. But the parents, they just think he's messing around. So I want them to feel empowered. Like, oh, we can definitely do this eat thing this week and get a little confidence for them. And it's good practice for him. And then kind of layer on a little bit at a time. Um, For another parent, I showed her where the word finder was in LAMP. And she is like, she's like descriptive model. Like she thinks this is the greatest thing. So now every time anything's going on in the family, she's showing him where the words are. Not necessarily having him use that, but she is just all this input about they're going to church, they're going to the pool, they're going to the beach, they're going to the ocean. And this little guy just came back and had, you know, was using the word ocean appropriately. <laughs> like we were, there was some picture of fish and he said fish and then he went ocean. And I was like, how did you learn ocean? And it was because I had just showed the mom word finder and I said, just play with that. Just that this week, that's your mission. Um, so I think that that's so hard for us in general, definitely for me, because I want to do so much more, but just giving them a chunk. And I know for me, since I'll be back every Tuesday or whatever, I can just keep layering. I think that's sometimes harder in school when you're you're only going to see the parent maybe once a quarter or once a year. That is absolutely a challenge at school is that you don't see the, you're seeing the student more. But I guess the same strategy would hold true if you swapped out the word parent and you put the word teacher. 
right? Yeah. So the meaning the speech therapist uh, would work in some sort of integrated therapy model as opposed to a pullout model. And that to me is similar to the parent being with you when you're doing mm-hmm. therapy or even part of therapy, meaning the teacher's there while you're doing part of therapy. And now you can show them the strategies and leave them with something to try for this week so they can become better at modeling, becoming better at using the device around the student. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think it's the same kind of um, strategy. And also, you know, after working in the schools for 10 years, whenever possible, having also that warm, collaborative, you know, camaraderie with the teacher is not this, oh, I'm going to drop in and give you an assignment. Sure. You know, really making sure that you have a nice working relationship, you know, and just sometimes it's like, oh, I saw this cool thing online that I thought you might find interesting when really you want them to do that every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, oh, I, I mean- came across this neat thing. It is funny you say that because it really, to me, it does start with building a relationship. And I'm talking about, here I'm talking about a strategy of giving people stuff to do, but really you wouldn't do that until the the relationship is established. They have trust for you. You have trust for them. There's a, it's all about building that relationship. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like everything in life, right? Totally. Uh, So let me ask you, um, we have students working now either in a pullout setting or then an integrated setting you're working with kids and the families, how do we help them generalize beyond what they're doing? Here we got this, this um, student that has 20 words, but they only use it in this one setting. And then mm-hmm. not, they move to another setting and it's like, oh, but with mom and dad, I don't use these words. Why, why would I do that? You know? So how do we help generalize? Um, I think two things that come to mind. One is making sure if there's somebody in the home, um, like me, like a private therapist, making sure you're collaborating with the school so the student is getting the same words, the same kind of expectations all over. Um, I've been a fan of like a word of the week, like this week it's open. And actually I've left it at parents' houses, like a stack of little open, like the word open, and they can put it you know, on the cabinet, on the door. So helping them remember, and I tell them, this is not for your kiddo, this is for you. Uh-huh. That every time you open the door, um, giving them those kinds of concrete things. I took, um, there's the app, My Play Home, which is one of my favorite apps. Are you familiar with that app? No, tell, well, tell us about it, because there might be people listening who do not know. So it's, um, they have a free light version and then a paid version and it's My Play Home, My Play School, My Play Hospital, and My Play Store. And it's basically a digital dollhouse. So you can turn the water on and off. You can open and close the door. You can open and close the shower curtain in the fridge. You can cook something and when you take it out of the microwave, it's steaming. You can fill up the cups and people drink them. The water, you know, goes down. So it's, it's just this really interactive dollhouse but I actually took a screenshot of it and then on my iPad Pro, and you could just do this, you know, with pencil and paper, but I actually wrote the core words that I wanted them to use. So in the kitchen, I had open and close on the cabinet doors and the refrigerator door and the outside door. Um, I had, there's an hour to go upstairs, I had up and down. And for this parent that was doing a lot of like, say apple, say milk. I know that parent. (laughs) Right, I said, you know, with his, his apraxia, it's going to be really hard for him to, to get those words. It's going to take a lot of repetition and practice. So let's make the words that he gets a lot of repetition and practice more, more of the core book type so that we can use them in multiple settings. So I actually took this dollhouse and wrote on it where you could use all those things like up and out and open and mine and eat and stop and more, whatever, so that the parent could actually see. I, and I guess this all comes down to parent education. Mm-hmm. I've had them do like a word web where, okay, tell me something that you do. Okay, go on the swing. Okay, let's actually do what could you talk about with the swing? So you could talk about fast and slow and go and stop and more and finished um, and up and down. Okay, tell me something else that you do. Okay, we, we take a bath. Okay, you could talk about wet and dry and hot and cold. And so actually having them kind of brainstorm so that they're seeing different scenarios where this is all applicable. But again, it's just kind of small chunks, like one thing at a time. But I get excited when I come back and they're like, oh, I did one of those webs for you know, movie night or whatever, so. So the, the theme of our conversation here uh, is, is less telling, more questioning, right? And more listening. And so you ask the questions they came up with themselves. I mean, there is the one strategy of just, like you said, labeling stuff so that, okay, this is when I say open. That's one strategy. And that's sort of like the telling. But then the next strategy is 
if I'm hearing you correctly, is, okay, let's sit down and brainstorm and let you come up with what to say here. And that maybe internalizes it even better. It's not just following directions. I'm, do, I'm coming up with the answer now. Yeah, and I think it's that old teaching uh, strategy of I, the teacher, do it. I do it. We do it together. The parent and I do it together. Okay, you do it this week for homework. Yes. Um, like I don't even realize I'm doing it, but I find that that's helpful because, again, it's just scaffolding, right, from you teaching them, but just with the plan that you're turning over the reins to them. You're empowering them, like you said. And, you know, when you do something yourself, you, A, get the confidence and B, internalize how to do it. So, so Megan, being someone who works in, in private practice, uh, you get to communicate with parents like maybe more frequently or maybe in different ways than in public school, or maybe it's similar ways in public school. What are your, what strategies or tools or techniques do you have for communication with parents? You know, we're all kind of overwhelmed with phone calls and emails, right? So I'm trying to actually record some little videos, even if it's just of myself for two or three minutes, explaining something or actually holding something up and demonstrating so that they can refer to it later in the week. Because I'm in the home, I can sometimes use my phone to shoot videos of the kids. Mm -hmm. So texting the parent that after the session that they can show to other folks, trying to make some of the things I want them to practice as like a YouTube video. So just coming up with different ways, shared Google Docs, a lot of the stuff you guys were talking about in your, your hacks video that it's quick, that it's not another long email or not another phone call where you want to share something. Um, but I find like we were kind of talking about before is having some kind of permanent, you know, artifact, whether it's a video, whether it's a picture. I like to kind of check in with them during the week whenever possible, kind of midweek, how's it going? Do you have any questions? Or I saw this great article. And I think this, you know, could kind of be the same thing with the school staff too for the folks that work at school you know, maybe sending out a, like a one minute video clip instead of an email. I just think it's something different, something novel. And I, if I never had another email again, I'd be happy. <laughs> yeah, people are uh, overwhelmed with emails, but they can pull up a video and watch it. And actually, depending on the apps you're using, you can actually watch it in like 1.5 speed or two, two mm -hmm. speed, you know what I mean? And get through it faster. And again, you can watch it multiple times. So what did I do there? What did she say there? Hold on, let's pause it. Hun, hun, what do you see here? Do you see this happen? Like, you know, husband, wife sitting together. Oh, do you see how she pointed to that thing? Now I see what she's saying. You know, you, you can talk about it a little bit more than an email that is sometimes a little bit harder to discuss. Yeah. And I think too, um, which, you know, obviously folks in school have to figure out what their policies are on, on videoing kids. But I like to just, even if it's a short video of the student working with me, because we know that sometimes we can push them in our highly structured you know, distraction-free situation. We may get the, the kiddos to be doing something that they don't do, like we said, all the time. So being able to show a teacher or a parent, like, look how independently he's doing this here. He, we can set this up that this is independent somewhere else. Or um, watch this video and, and note how he did it by himself, but it really is like, it took me about 30 seconds of wait time and how hard that was and just yeah. kind of keep that in mind. It may take, but I think something like that, it really just seeing it when you see wait time in action versus telling a teacher or um, an instructional assistant or a parent like, oh, you need to give them wait time. I think it's two totally different exercises. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So are there any particular apps that you use or is just in general the strategies? I, just in general, the strategies, um, you know, I tend to use my iPhone or iPad on a, you know, just catch the videos that way or yeah. voice recorder on there. I think it makes a lot of sense. You don't have to get something special necessarily to do this. It comes built in, packaged in with the device itself. Sometimes I think people go, oh, geez, you have to buy another app. How much, right. how expensive is that? No, it's just all there. And I do a lot of where the kids are, you see their hands maybe, or you just see me. So I, I do that strategically just so that I don't have any issues with confidentiality where the parent knows it's their kid. Yes. <laughs> they recognize their hands. But Well, I, I've told the story twice now, actually, on the podcast about how you sent me the picture of that student, yes. but you yes. had kind of blocked out the face. If it was intercepted on the interwebs or whatever, you know, no one could, it's not, no identifying information. I didn't really even know who the kid was because right. it wasn't really about this specific kid. It was more about the idea that, oh my gosh, there are other kids that know this device and we're modeling. Yeah, it was so cool because he was flanked by, quote, typically developing peers. And it was a county camp, so it wasn't even kids that he had gone to elementary school with during the school year. 
and they knew how to use it. And he was just so, I think he was so much more engaged because I think he was getting just that, you know, that feedback loop was getting closed. Even if he wasn't saying anything necessarily commenting on anything in the present, he'd say something and a kid would walk over and say, oh, that's cool. Look, you have trucks and, and really stimulate him to have um, more of those peer interactions. And, um, you know, it's been really neat to see because that student is, today I saw him and he was just playing appropriately, you know, quote appropriately, but he was sitting at the table with the other kids. It was in the after school program, just playing with Play-Doh. Like if you walked in there, you would have had no idea that he had anything that he was working on in, in speech or language or special ed. So it was cool because he, I do definitely think his ability to communicate and the way that the kids, I think, connected with him and he was less um, sometimes I feel like our kids are like the mascot, like, oh, he's so cute. You know, they have all your mother hens. And this, I think, was more authentic that they were really having a relationship with him. So it was really cool. Yeah, we're just buddies playing. Yep. Yeah, that's so great. That's so great. That's so great. And he had the coolest thing out of anybody there. So he was getting a lot of, you know, <laughs> positive attention. You mean the app itself? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I just think, I mean, I just think that was so, uh, the kids are, you know, drawn to the iPad and then they did more with it. You know what I mean? They had an, a conversation and a back and forth and a nice little rapport with him. But I think it kind of helped open that door. You know, and I wonder too, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago we had my daughter on the podcast. Uh, yeah, and- I can't believe how big she is. <laughs> All right. She's uh, a toddler in my brain. <laughs> she, um, her and her friends, and sometimes I feel like maybe I'm too close to it, so I, it's hard for me to judge, but I'm, I'm thinking now, I think about how many students out there are in each of the schools that we work in uh, that have communication devices, right? They're using mm-hmm. some sort of uh, high-tech communication device or even low-tech with robust language, but they're, they have some sort of access. So all the other kids who are not using augmentative communication, like my daughter, are aware of it. They're seeing it. Oh, that's like what so-and-so has, or that's what so-and-so has. And it's becoming so prevalent that the peers can be helped model on it. You know, I just wonder where we're going to be five years from now with that. You know what I mean? Where everyone, especially kids just are aware of it more and can use it more. Right. And you know, the kids, this, these are their peers. These are their classmates. That's how they communicate. And for so many kids, that's the beginning and end of it. There's no baggage. There's no drama. So now that kids, more of our students that need this type of technology have access to it. And like you said, it's more prevalent. I'm really, yeah, I agree. In a couple of years, you know, do we have a device in every classroom? Do we have more kids participating in, you know, a general ed setting? Because what a a door opener, right, communication can be. Yeah. Um, We've had situations, um, well, I know of situations where, let's say, a general ed teacher uh, the, the, the student with complex communication needs comes in with a communication device. The speech therapist and, the, and maybe the, the case manager and maybe uh, an assistive technology person advocate or, or help the teacher understand that, hmm, what if we use this system to teach other kids reading, for instance? Mm-hmm. Like, let's just have this up as a big poster and everyone can use it for sight words or whatever, right? Right. Um, where then the kid then leaves and the next year the teacher continues to use the AAC idea. You know what I mean? They wouldn't necessarily yeah. have to teach, to teach kids about sight words and reading. It's just another support there. Why not? Right. And just think of that. Now AAC has become like a mainstream strategy. Yeah. And I think helping people understand like that, it's, that it can be more versatile that, like you said, used for multiple purposes and multiple situations and that buy-in is, is tremendous. I had a project with part of my PhD program where I did a small study of uh, infrared microphones where the teachers had infrared microphones. The data that I tracked was the teacher's behavior, how much redirection, how many times I had to get the class back on track, how many times I had to redirect the kids to get out their materials or whatever. And over the course of the study, right, the teachers who had their voices amplified in the foreground, you know, over all the background noise, their teacher behaviors of redirecting and restarting and flicking the lights to get the kids to all those teacher behaviors went down because the kids had the voice louder than the din of the classroom. So the teachers, the couple teachers that participated, I think the million times and they were devastated when I needed to take the systems out. Yes. It's just one of those tools where they're like, oh, this helped me so much. So I think sometimes teachers aren't even sure, but once they see things in action, like using LAMP for sight words or something like that, or using the core vocabulary, they're like, oh, okay, this is, 
multifaceted and you know multi-useful. Yes, yes. Those accommodations that started for a few grow to be just stuff you use, right? And right, you wouldn't even practice. think, of, yeah, good practice for everybody. So Megan, my final question that I like to ask people is, what are you questing after? What are you curious about? What are you, what do you got, what are you thinking about when it comes to, to AAC and students with complex communication needs or serving them? What's, what's on your mind lately? I um, am doing some professional development for a local school district and I'm teaching this class for, it's the whole state of Virginia because there's so many folks that are getting licensure and adaptive curriculum that they've taken all of the special teachers for Virginia and put them into my online class. So the thing that I'm trying to figure out is basically kind of what we were talking about before is how can I get this information to folks? You know, what is AAC? Why you use it? How it is augmentative and not always alternative, making mm. sure folks understand that concept, knowing about the research and the different types of low-tech, high-tech options that are out there, getting that out to the folks that are in the field. Because now I'm dealing with all teachers, not speech pathologists, not, you know, kind of people who are specialists. But how, what's the right mix of information to give them that they can really kind of take that message and move it forward? So I'm just trying to get as much, I'm trying to fill my brain as much with like your podcast and I just uh, signed up for speechpathology.com and I'm doing all their AAC and, and core vocabulary training just to hear how other people talk about it, other strategies. Um, cause I'm like a professional development junkie. Like, <laughs> cause I always feel like I get like one nugget out of everything that I attend. So yeah, just trying to just get as much information because I feel like I'm like the conduit for a lot of people. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> I love that. I mean, I think that's so awesome because the more we spread it to more teachers, the, the faster those, when I say five years from now, well, if we mm -hmm. can get to that five years later in three years, right. you know what I mean? And right. the way you do that is spread the word. You, you had mentioned uh, that you were making short videos. Do you have like a YouTube channel? Are you sharing these or is it just for your parents' Yeah, I, um, I'm in the uh, beginning of building out a blog, so it's not up and running, but my regular website is up, and I'm time to talk SLP on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, so kind of starting to put things out there as I build them, but I'm trying to be very strategic, like I said, just make sure I have a good quality before I get a whole lot of useful stuff out to the world. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, so people can hit you up in those different ways. What is your handle again? Time to talk SLP. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, Megan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to more Facebook messages from you and collaborating in the future. Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Michelle Wintering, Michael McLeod, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question. What is communication? You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.